0: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. David McQueen is the co-founder of Q Squared. He is an expert in leadership communication, workplace culture, and presentation skills. He consults and speaks with senior leaders all over the country, including a certain Sir Richard Branson. We discuss the challenges facing all minorities as they climb their professional careers in the UK. But David pays particular attention to the challenges faced by black professionals He cites that across 800 partners in the top five law firms in the country, only four of them are black, Uh, three of the five are not British-born. Of the top four consultancies, EY, Deloitte, PwC, and KPMG, of 1,500 partners, only 27 of them are black, Uh, he says this is not about ticking a box um, for compliance. UK corporations have promised an opportunity for those that really get on, work hard, um, that they'll ultimately do well and progress in their careers. But many of them have not really followed through on that promise and are failing a lot of their Black and ethnic minorities when they get to a certain point in their career ladders. This is just such a, a fascinating conversation concerning everything from the fallout from the last few months, Black Lives Matter, and everything else in between, If you are even remotely interested in anything to do with race and diversity in our profession and what to do about it, then get a coffee, strap yourself in. And without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with David McQueen. David McQueen is the co-founder and managing director of Q Squared. He is fascinated with leadership communication, workplace culture, and presentation skills, how people develop teams, help build products, and engage customers and clients. His main work involves consulting, executive, and group coaching facilitation and speaking. He's also a board advisor and business mentor to senior leaders. David McQueen, welcome to Agency Dealmasters.
1: Thank you very much, Nathan. I love that little intro there I think I'm going to take you as my wingman whenever I go to speak to
0: <laughs> well it's 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 all true it's all true uh there have been i I've been really excited to speak to you because there are issues that black professionals face in the u k today that uh need addressing and that have been under the carpet for quite some time um and I wanted to speak to you in light of recent events. So we can talk about some of the problems that specifically we're facing and some of the potential solutions. But um, let's talk a little bit about, before we get into all of that heavy stuff, let's talk a little bit about your career. Uh, you did a year at London Metropolitan University. You hated it. Yep. Then you left. Mm-hmm. Tell us how you got your start in the business world.
1: Um, well, I, I started business when I was in school. Um, used to do a little bit of side hustling here and there. Um, I remember, uh, it, it, this is, might be a refrain that's typical of, of of children of African and Caribbean descent. I remember saying to my mum, uh, you know, I wanted a pair of Adidas gazelles. And she was like, Adi who? I was like, <laughs> 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 and at that point, I knew I was, you know, she was going to go and get me some shoes from, you know, with four stripes on them from kind of like, <laughs> like that, and I was right. like, no, i got to do a little hustle. Find out a way I could do a little hustle. Started doing that in school. Right. I ran a tuck. My first business was a tuck shop at 14. Um, used to do student raise when I was 16, 17, did raise when okay. I was in 18, um, went to uni, was still doing stuff, um, quit after a year cause I didn't want to do law. Uh, uh, but then I realized I was making money, but not managing it properly. And mm. so I wanted you to know, what kind of career could I go in that could show me how I could really manage money. And the one that worked out well for me was, um, in accounts. I was never going to be an accountant. I knew that they tried to force me to go and take exams and all the rest of it. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, but just ended up using a lot of that skill over eight years worth of working in finance where I understood business and I understood money and then just did a lot of side hustle since then. And in the last, Mm -hmm. I'd say 20 odd years, um, I've run a number of companies, um, uh, and I'm currently running, I'm currently director of two, but I've had Mm -hmm. my wins, had my losses and I've just loved it along the way. I just absolutely loved it along the way. Yeah.
0: You, you consult and speak to audiences around the world about leadership, communication, workplace culture, and presentation skills. Tell us who your typical clients are and what problems do you typically solve for them?
1: Uh, so my main focus is around leadership and, and the angle that I take is specifically around leadership communication. So lots of individuals are, get told that they should be leaders. Um, I'm of the opinion that not everybody is a... Um, is either equipped for leadership, um, whether by title or function, uh, and title, I mean, like, you know, they call you the leader of this or what have you, or by function being able to lead in a situation. But what I do is if there are individuals who are in those roles and there isn't going to be, um, uh, whether they are, uh, chosen to be there or whether they fell in there, my job is to be able to teach those leaders how to communicate effectively. Um, I start. How do you communicate with self first? So that's self-awareness, that's self-leadership, knowing how to manage your emotions and manage how you see the world. And then I teach leaders how to communicate to teams. So how do they motivate teams? How do they understand behavior change? And then I work with organizational leaders in the C-suite, so senior executives who give vision and strategy and direction to the um, organization. And I do that through a number of means, again, either through coaching, or I facilitate workshops where I go and speak about how they can communicate better um, but mm. speaking, holding meetings, coaching staff, and I use a specific model around how I do that. So organizations will call me in primarily around um, in preparation of uh, either new leaders being onboarded or leaders being prepared. They may sure. me, obviously, in this season, a lot of it is around culture change and how do they deal to making sure that their cultures are more inclusive. Or, sure. Or I just teach people how to speak properly in public.
0: mm. Really interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter and the current moment that we're in right now, because we've seen people in the UK expressing a lot of uh, shock and concern about what's happening in America um, and saying that really those sort of things won't really happen here, don't really happen here, can't happen here. And while the problems are very different for Black Americans than they are for us here in the UK, there are still significant problems that Black and ethnic minorities face in this country talk about what are some of the specific challenges that we face as black professionals in the UK and what can the average business owner or corporate professional do to alleviate it
1: so I think a lot of it and that I'm finding uh with the clients that I'm working with at the moment is that they they don't fully understand or aren't fully aware of the black experience and what it means to be able to go into a a workforce or a workplace and have to leave a lot of what we have as black professionals at home. I I was doing an article this week on LinkedIn where I was saying that, you know, I don't agree with this whole thing about you need to uh, bring your whole self to work. And mm. I was saying one of the main reasons I don't believe that is a true maxim is because many of the workplaces that we have don't accommodate for you to bring your whole self. You know, mm. as black professionals, uh, often, you know, people are told that we are too loud. Um, i remember actually being told that by a manager and he told me i was too loud and i laughed in his face even louder but then i am so too and no one's going to come and play with me anyway um and there are <laughs> you know we have to code switch we go into these workplaces knowing that there is a certain level of queen standard english we need to have mm-hmm. and we're very conscious of even when we're having calls or talking to uh members in our community that you know Uh, the kind of normal lingua franca or the vernacular that we're used to amongst our mates. We have to switch it up. We're in that workplace. Not a Mm. lot of people have to do that. Then there is a toning around hair. There's a toning around the way we dress. Um, Often many uh, members of the diaspora feel that they need to um, anglicize their names in order to be able to navigate their spaces because somebody can't be asked to to understand um, that the person's name is Bola and you don't shorten it to John just because it makes you feel better. Yeah. Um, but those are a lot of things that we have to navigate. We see things like unequal pay. We are people who miss out on discretionary bonuses. We see promotions of people who are less talented than we are. And then there's also the mantra, which I always fight against, and I fight against this quite strongly, in that many of us going into the workplaces, having family and friends and communities that tell us that we need to work twice as hard to get half as much. And I think that's a horrible deficit narrative to start with because you already start to feel like you've got to be working twice as hard as a white person and I don't mm. think race should be the limit as to how well and how good you actually perform as an individual it should be about how good you are just go and do your best be smart and don't compare yourself to anyone else but loads of these things when they roll in together as one they tend to affect the black community disproportionately
0: mm. well let's talk about what some of the strategies are that companies should be employing to alleviate some of these challenges that we're facing and that you've just described, because we've seen significant steps from companies like Netflix, for instance, giving a hundred million dollars to black businesses and visa setting up massive internships for black graduates and Goldman Sachs just saying today that they won't um, take any companies public if they don't have a diverse board. And there are countless other examples of corporations not only uh sort of speaking in solidarity but actually sort of acting um now. What do you think corporations, what do you think the role is of UK businesses right now in this current moment? What should they be doing?
1: So the first thing I think is that they shouldn't just be reacting. And um there are a lot of organizations across the board who put out these um especially around race and inclusion and black lives, they put out these little, you know, black and white uh, banners. We are with you. We stand with you, and all this kind of whatever. And, and and don't get me wrong. I think a lot of it came from a place of good intention, but action speaks louder than words. And and I think it's important that organizations who recognize that, especially when they are global companies or or, or reaching wider right, or or many of their stakeholders will be affected or or will be impacted by black purchases consumers, a supply chain. It's about being fully aware as to how they communicate in those spaces. So it's about language. It's about the assumptions around race. All those things, there need to be um, open forums for that individuals who don't know better can get educated. A lot of the work I'm doing at the moment, as I'm hosting town halls, I'm running workshops and and, and facilitating spaces and, and even doing some coaching. So individuals know what the experiences are of their black people in their workforce and other stakeholders and people in the supply chain. And part of it is is not assuming that I'm out here to speak for all black people, because that's not what I'm going to do. But I will ask those individuals who work, I will survey them, I will have conversations with them and, and ask them how are they managing and how are they navigating this space. I take that information back to the senior leaders and, and managers in those organizations and I let them know exactly this is how the ground lies and what are they going to do to be able to change it. So for me, the the, the main part here is about getting them to understand how important it is for black members of staff to feel that they belong and feel like they are, you know, represented in, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the workforce. And, you know, I, I have a, I have a four pronged approach that I all share with individuals. It's not, you know, frameworks are a 10 a penny. I don't feel no way about it, but I think that a lot of people are afraid to talk about it because they come from it from a position of fear. They think that they're going to get it wrong and they're going to say the wrong things. and They're going to get offended and people are going to sue them or they're going to get canceled on social media or any of the yeah. other language so I have a four-step approach. I go, let's approach it with love. I'm going to take the intention that you don't know where it's coming from. And even though it might, you know, I have to bite my tongue because some of the the, 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 the words or the phrases that may come out may be quite um, uh, problematic for me. It's, it's, it's important to start with love. And once we started that conversation with love, we can move forward. And then the second one would be around language. So what's the shared language that we have or what are the terms that you don't know when you mm-hmm. hear frames like, white privilege or white supremacy or BAME or black or BIPOC, you know, black and indigenous people of color. How do you navigate those phrases? What are the right ones to say? Uh, the third one then is about listening. How well are we listening? What is that active listening? Are you listening just because you want to respond? Or are you listening to understand where the actual person comes from? And as that process is developed, is you know, what do you use then to shape the, the kind of questions that you want to ask for clarity? And then I use those three principles of the love, the language and the listening, and I roll it up into the fourth, I go, right, now we know that. How do we leverage that into the organization so that our culture, yeah. our strategy, our vision, the whole way we operate, that people can understand that we've learned from those lessons and we'll move it forward. And not only will we be able to benefit internally, but the external stakeholders that you provide for as well, that they will benefit from your new wisdom and your ability to be able to navigate that space properly.
0: You said that you run workshops for organisations where you interview their BAME staff to really understand how are they managing in this environment and sort of what are their specific challenges. You just off air, you were talking. You you said that you ran one yesterday. Mm. Um, talk about what some of the surprising outcomes of some of the conversations you were having yesterday were, and how how did, how did they make you feel?
1: So I think uh, uh, across the board, I've been working with a number of clients, and 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 some of the stuff, obviously, uh, although as a facilitator, you know, part of my role is to be, to a to a greater extent, emotionally detached uh, from you know the conversations. There are sometimes, as a a black man, that I will get triggered, and mm. and and primarily out of empathy as opposed to the shared experience itself, um, and 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 some of them are, you know, when you're talking about a uh, black uh, members of staff who are working in a position have been working for a number of years, and they've seen individuals get um, come into a, an organisation are less proficient, but they will see them get um, promoted, and, and primarily because they look like or sound like their manager, or may have come from the same school, or or may have come through the referral route, which which then gives them an acceleration up the up the um, uh, the, the career ladder. There are others where there are. Uh, there are a number of black women who I know have had a v- a very derogatory terms being used towards them around their hair, their, their race, the fact that they're working mothers. Um, you know, there are individuals in you know, clients who I've spoken to where, you know, individuals have used the N-word in front of them and they've had to literally, um, you know, cascade the complaint to other people, but it's never seemed to be taken seriously because as far as some of these perpetrators are concerned, they heard it in a hip-hop song, so they don't understand what the problem is. Hmm. Whilst I understand that there are, you know, especially when you're working from a global company, there may be people coming from different parts of the world. If you're a UK based company, you have a duty of care to your employees to make sure that those individuals come in, know that this language and this behavior is unacceptable. And, you know, in in other instances, I know that there have been um, organizations where people have said they don't see any black talent in the pip- pipeline. And I'll say that's BS, because at the end of the day, when I go and have a look at your um, recruitment figures and where you're getting your staff from. You're saying to me 45% of your graduate recruitment is of black, Asian and minority backgrounds and other minority backgrounds. If 45% of that coming in to the to the workforce of those new talented people coming from, you know, in many cases, some of the best universities in the, in the country, all of a sudden, when you get to middle or senior leadership, it's down to what, 5% and less. So what's happened to that 40 or 43% that came in before what you're doing? And I will say to them, it's because you haven't done anything to retain them. Hmm. And have high attrition rates because there is an element of systematic racism in here. And whether you like to admit it or not, there are individuals who will highlight that to you. So you either have the choice to be able to address it honestly or be subject to the fact that you will be put in the press or people will go for you on social media and they will call you out for who you really are. And, you know, look, I'm old enough and, and bad enough not to care emotionally if people get upset by what it is that I say, because I always go, I'm focusing on the idea more than the individual. And if you as an individual take it to heart, that's your issue. You can get offended and you need to deal with it. I'm talking about the idea. What is the idea around how you recruit, how you retain, how you nurture that talent, how you create those opportunities for black leaders and black professionals to be able to, to, be able to have a bit of the pie that you've always promised, that if you do hard work and if you work those extra hours and you do this stuff, that it will be available to you. Who When people do it, they realize, hold on a minute, this is not how it's working. Um, and those things can be quite emotionally draining and individuals who are then in um, uh, the, you know, who are in those workspaces and who feel, look, I don't have a voice. So I might as well just continue what I'm doing until a, a, such a time as another opportunity happens. And that shouldn't be the case. And so for me, there's a lot of them. And and, and, and mm-hmm. I'm quite cautious as well that, you know, uh, whilst this is in a, a public forum, um, I, I, I don't want to go into too many details about it, but generally speaking across the board, there are so many levels of microaggressions and in some instances, macroaggressions where people are totally disrespectful to people from black backgrounds. And I have a platform, I have a voice and I will call people out. I make no, no qualms about it. Uh, I would actually even call them out by firm name, and I, you know, especially if I have enough data behind me so that no one's coming out here suing me for libel, <laughs> I literally have no problem saying that, you know, or I'll go through a whole industry. Um, you know, at the moment, I'll be really honest. You know, when I think about advertising and and and, and publishing, they are very, very detrimental um, sectors to um, black professionals. Yeah. And you know, the Telegraph a number of weeks ago also said, look, when you think of the major law firms, you know, you imagine there are eight hundred partners in the UK. Eight hundred partners of law firms in the UK for the top five companies. Top five. Yeah, top five companies. Of the eight hundred, four partners in those organisations are black. Four of eight hundred. And I can tell you now for a fact, three of those partners aren't British black. And that for me is incredibly problematic because you've created this platform where people can say that they can go and ascend. You know, I'm working with one of the firms, you can work out for yourself, where they do have a black partner. And part of the conversation I'm having is what are you going to do to set targets, to get to a pipeline, to encourage more people to be there? Likewise, you know, in the top, like accountancy, the top four consultancies, there's something like 1500 partners across big players like, you know, Ernst Young and Deloitte and Price Waterhouse, et cetera, et cetera. And of those 1,500, 27 partners are black. Yes, Deloitte's the chief, the chief partner at Deloitte is a black woman. But that's for me, and I, and I totally salute her, but that's one person that's been allowed to get through. Hmm. So you're trying to say to me that all the other people who have come through um, have, have not had the same kind of work ethic or space or, uh, or opportunities as, as she has. And if they hmm. have, what are you going to do about it? So, um, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm quite passionate about it. And, and, and I'm just, as, a, as, as my daughter would say, I'm out here snatching edges and taking notes <laughs> and making sure that, you know, um, we have an honest conversation about it. This is not about ticking a box. This is about recognizing that there are lots of people who have worked hard, who are very intelligent, who have been effectively promised through the glossy brochures and all these things that there is an opportunity here. And then when they get behind closed doors and get to a certain level, it's a total different narrative. And I don't mind coming from the outside and kicking down a door and say, listen, as far as I'm concerned, let's do this equality thing properly.
0: Mm. There's there's so many ways that we can go with this. Um, one of the things that springs out of what you said is um, your second uh, sort of item on your framework, which is language. Yeah. And there are so many white agency owners who have swerved this conversation completely for fear of getting things wrong and not using the right language and terminology. Maybe they've had good intentions and they want to speak out publicly, but for whatever reason, they feel as though they can't. Because if they do, they might make a mistake and be vilified for it and and um, and called out. Um, how do we create? How do we create a safer environment where business leaders are free to discuss contentious issues on race?
1: So again, I, th- I think it's it's about. Uh, in, in especially for agencies and, and and spaces that are are afraid to have these conversations, get somebody external and and go and have a look at the work of the facilitator uh, now anti racism as a whole i' i I'm, I'm not bothered who who does that, but in terms of when it focuses on anti blackness, I think that that facilitation should be led by a black person quite and I'm quite adamant about that because i don't feel and this is one of the issues that I have with this concept of BAME, um, you know, it's, it's a term, it's a loose term, but BAME basically means anybody who's non-white British. Mm. You've got everybody else in this are so white Europeans, Australians, you know, um, North Americans, you've got travelers, you've got Southeast Asian, South Asians, and then black and Caribbean African people and, and anybody else mm. who fits into that. Mm. Just because you're lumped into that group doesn't necessarily mean that you can speak on behalf of anti-blackness. You just can't.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: If you're coming from Uh, a a background where you are um, quite complicit and you won't get involved in any form of conflict and it's just head down. And you're seen in many ways, like say, for example, Southeast Asian or South Asians, they will be seen as a model minority and they will be seen as individuals who won't speak up and they will just get on with it and put their head down and what have you and deal with this stuff. Whereas when a lot of people see um, uh, black people who, who at the core have been very vocal about race equality, and have been for a number of years, but have been treated differently from other members of BAME. I'm saying to mm. you is get a black-led, um, and it doesn't have to be, the person doesn't have to own the company, but for that initiative, get a black-led person to bring it there because they'll understand the context whilst being a facilitator. They will understand it. Then let's get in a room. Get the senior leaders in a room and stop sending out, I'm not going to swear on your podcast, <laughs> I'm going to contain one.
0: It's fine. Right? That's what editing is for.
1: So it's all good. But, you know, stop effing about and really think about how do I bring my senior leaders around a table to make sure this is done correctly? And stop with these, you know, a lot of people start putting out these ethnic pay gap reports. Do you know what? I honestly don't care. And I say that in the nicest way. Because you can shoot out an ethnic pay report, um, ethnic pay gap report, but not do anything about it. And then all that is, is just showboating. Because you've not necessarily said, okay, what, who are we going to have in our partner, um, our partner pipeline? And who are those individuals that we're going to treat them differently? And and how are we going to be able to be transparent about our pay? So rather than somebody getting a discretionary bonus just because you're a mate of the directors, you're actually doing it because it's deserved and you've created the performance metrics and targets that that organization or individual has to meet in order to be able to hit the actual bonus. Be very, very clear about it because, look, we know people speak. Even though people are like, oh, we're not going to really talk about pay and stuff. People do speak and they know. So be really honest about it because... Um, if you're really going to be writing those statements, do it and do it effectively, um, and 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 make sure that you know whilst you are saying it with your whole chest, you're following up with action. Create those spaces where senior leaders can be brought together for the um, the, the 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 members of staff who come from a, a black background, black African or Caribbean background heritage. Get them to understand what they want, their experiences are, and what they want to see better, rather than just making an assumption and sending out statements. Because really that's, that's patronizing, it's, and it's insulting. And then when people start to talk about values in their organization and belonging and honesty, and uh, I, I call BS on that and say, no, you're not. You're not. It's not at all. So until organizations have an honest conversation about how they're doing it, get an external facilitator to come in to manage that whole process, and then create strategies and open documents about how they're actually going to move it, and targets. And let me make it very clear as well. I think there's a big difference between quotas and targets. Hmm. Quotas are very much political motivated, and they're like, okay, we're going to get two black people in here and we're going to tick a box and it's going to be really good. I'm like, no, let's go with targets. You know, when the 30% club came along, they had targets. 30% was the target of how many women that they wanted on senior boards. And boards started to move heaven and earth and started aligning with this organization to see, right, let's go in our talent pipeline and make sure that we have more women in there who we can promote in positions of power. Sure. And that was a clear target. 30%, you started to work towards it. For me. And then
0: it becomes the norm.
1: Exactly. For me, look, black people out in London and sorry, in the UK as a whole represent 4% of the population. Let's set that 4% target, that 4% target of representation in terms of access to finance, that 4% target in terms of senior leadership in roles, because we've got the talent. It's not like we don't have the talent there. We've got the talent. And, you know, myself and others, we've been working specifically on black leadership programs. So don't tell us you can't find a way to be able to train it. Put your money where your mouth is and, and do the work and do the work. And don't give Mm -hmm. me all that nonsense about I don't see colour. I can't have it. As I said to to one guy, I said, what happens when you pull up to a traffic light? If you don't see (laughs) colour, you do. You know, make sure that it's honest. It's
0: an accident waiting to happen.
1: And if you don't want to, and here's the thing as well, as I said, if you don't want to, just say it. If you're going to be part of an agency or any organisation you don't want to have black people there, just be honest. I know you're scared about, oh, you know, what people may think. I'd prefer to know that you're racist. I'd just prefer it.
0: Well this is an interesting this is an interesting topic because I was speaking to an agency owner just yesterday who who runs a, d- a design agency and he was he was saying that on of the many panels and boards that he sits on they talk about how they can get more black people into black designers specifically into agencies and that they go to universities and there are very few black people studying design in the first place so he finds it very difficult to recruit them recruit them he says he wants to recruit them he has a real they have a real desire to because they have a number of quotas and targets to your point but he's frustrated because he says that there's no great conspiracy against black people he's just looking for them and they're not particularly there
1: okay and you want my response he's not looking hard enough mm. he's not looking hard enough and the, the truth is is that look when you start to think about how recruitment processes are developed there are lots of i can tell you now that in a lot of organizations, probably something north of about 70% of new recruits in new places are done by referral. It's not its not a secret. People know. Yes, you know, I, I think in the last week or so, there are a lot of organizations that have um, referral. And, and those referrals are through friends. And those referrals are through people that they've either gone to school with and what have you. I'm saying that a lot of those individuals may not have been, they're not the, the graduates that you expect, or they may not have gone Russell Group. They may have been individuals that um, have graduated from courses and art courses and other spaces which aren't your top kind of tier, um, your top tier kind of universities. What it is with a lot of these agencies is that they don't look deep enough. And because they don't look deep enough, what they're not finding is they're not looking specifically for the talent
0: um,
1: in the right places. But they're there. There are loads. I can tell you there are loads of the quality designers that can Mm. get into those places if people looked hard enough and the other bit, the other bit of it as well if i sorry to Nathan the other bit of it as well sure. i think is important is a lot of organisations have realised <coughs> that if you want to nurture really good talent you start from school you start to go into schools and you tell these students who are really good at art and design who are really good at being able to have a, a, an awareness of the kind of um, direction that they want to go to take your organization and people and go into a school and start to give presentations if you think it's from an unrepresented background and you're living in London go and take yourself down to Brixton or to Newham or to Harlesden or to Peckham and go into those schools which have a um, you know a, a large population which is underrepresented in your actual organization have a conversation with those head teachers and those heads of education who can start to talk about you know the the art departments and the craft and design departments where you've got some really good talented students and get those individuals and, you know, do a presentation for them. And then, you know, get a small cohort of them who may be interested in the career and bring them into your actual organization so that they can at least spark with the idea that they can go to university, they can go and do an internship on their second or their exchange year, and they can go and work in these, in these organizations, but they're then fully made aware of it. That whole point of not being able to find the talent for me is laziness, because if you're a creative and if you're innovative, you find ways to make sure that you can get your work done. You can do
0: the mm. same thing for talent. Mm. Really well said. Uh, just coming towards the end of the interview now, David, last couple of questions before we get into everyone's favorite questions. Those are the questions that I ask all of my guests. Um, you you're also, you also advise and consult and help business leaders become better public speakers. Yes. What advice do you have for me about becoming a better public speaker? And what do you have in general uh, what advice in general do you have about becoming a better public speaker?
1: So for me, th- there's one part of speaking that is around confidence. And and that's about not just being able to stand up in front of people, but confident in your subject matter as well. So sometimes I'm asked to speak on subjects that I'm not an expert on. I, I know I'll talk about leadership. I'll talk about presentation skills. I'll talk about culture. I'll talk a little bit about career. But anything outside of that, that's not my bag. I'm not talking about it. I get asked no. all the time. Sometimes I get asked to talk about diversity. I go, I can talk to you about culture, but I don't do diversity and inclusion. <laughs> That's not my bag. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, but you do the work. I said, no, I do culture. Let me make it very clear. Because I don't know about all the nuances around diversity and inclusion. That's not my bag. That's not my gift. So stay in your lane. Be really confident about the subject matter that you talk about. The second <laughs> bit for me is about practice. Lots of practice. So like now, you know, you're public speaking now because we're on a podcast. But a lot of people only think about it in one lane. If you do a Mm. podcast, if you do a a vlog, if you do, um, if you speak in church, if you uh, do presentations for town halls at work, if you're doing stuff in the community, that's all speaking. It's just about how you all pull it together and understand what's that, you know, what's that key thing that I really love doing? What's the kind of platform that I love working on? Mm. Uh, And then the last one is just really about um, uh, um, practice, loads and loads of practice. Yeah, it really is. Look, I've been practicing for fifty-one years, right? <laughs> I would say, okay. So it's always practicing. I'm always getting better. Never, never. Sure. A constant journey, and it's always, always getting better. And while you're practicing, making sure you're getting feedback. You know what works. What can you improve? You know what stood out for people. I use a yeah. model that's called the win the win model. So what's what what works? What improves? And then what's notable? And I use that all the time to build. I know very often I talk fast, and I've been talking fast for years. Um, Fortunately for me, the message lands and people will still hire me and still pay me. <laughs> but I do know that you know one of the faults that I have is 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 around speaking too fast because I get so excited and mm. always reminding myself that I need to do that. So yeah, just yeah, the, I the, have the, that. The, the three things: be confident in who mm-hmm. you are and what you're going to talk about. Uh, number two, recognize that you know what kind of platform do you want to speak on, uh, and number three, just recognize it's a lot of practice when you've developed those signature. Um, subjects that you're confident about. Just keep practicing, just keep practicing and and, and just make the most of it.
0: Hmm. It's really interesting what you said around the difference between diversity and inclusion and culture. I would have thought that diversity, inclusion and inclusion makes up part of your culture. How do you define what the difference is? Are, Are they two separate, completely separate things?
1: So the, the way I look at it is there, there is a lot of conversations around equality, diversity, and inclusion in, in an organization. And, and very often they are not um, either um, represented as fully on the board. They don't have the amount of power. Lots of people who are working in these spaces are doing a lot of really good work, but they don't have the power. Um, it's usually a single title role. Uh, uh, sometimes in a larger organization, there may be more. But for me, diversity and inclusion is part of culture. It's one part of it. For me, the culture is the big bit. It's it's around how you process stuff. It's around how you treat individuals. It's around how you treat your customers. And whilst the um, whilst the, uh, the, the you know there is a a, a drive around specific strategies around D and I, I always go let me. I'm going to take it a level above that. What are you actually trying to say? Your workplace mm. actually does. What is the culture that you have for your customers? What's the culture that you have for your staff? What's the culture that you have for your investors or any other stakeholders? What does it mean? What are the values that you actually stand by? Because once you've got that right, all that other stuff like D&I and what have you, that actually comes into place. Um, And too often people put the cart before the horse. They want to go, okay, we're going to be really inclusive and what have you. And I go, okay, what's your culture? What does it actually really look like? What does it stand for? If I asked any member of your staff, what does this company mean to them? And what's the direction that it's taking in the way you treat people in your supply chain and the way you treat employees and the way you have progression from you know being a junior entry going all the way up to leadership what does that actually look like and what do you have in place and that for me is a lot wider people sit down and focus a lot more on strategy and culture at a really celebrant and leadership level a lot more across the board than they do mm. dni and very often dni is left down to one person or a couple of people who think that they need to do it as opposed to it being i think culture is more about dna it's about what's in yeah. the actual fiber of the actual organization as a whole and what you stand for that's how mm. I see it in, in, in my lens.
0: I love that. Brilliant. We're well, just bringing the interview to to a close now. Now we'll get into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm super excited to ask you some of them as well. Uh, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience.
1: Oh my God. How many times have I failed?
0: <laughs>
1: uh, failure is a constant part for me of business. Um, I'll give you a more, a more recent one. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to call it failure, even though I don't necessarily use that word per se, but okay. I set up a, I had the intention of setting up an, an incubator called legacy 71, which was specifically focused on creating funding and education for black tech companies in the UK primarily sure. because they were underfunded and what have you. I, I closed it down, uh, the, 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 company and, um, the direction I was going in earlier this year, just, um, just after we had the lockdown. Um, and I say failure in that there were a lot of things that I took for granted, um, around the actual market, what it would take to develop it and what have you, I, you know, I took a lot of things for granted with that. And, um, the, the truth was I, I wasn't ready and mm. and I shut it down, but there were a lot of lessons that I learned from it. One of those sure. is that Always. rather than trying to set up a new vehicle, I was best placed when I worked with the existing players in the space who were working on raising finance who were working on education and when I dovetailed my skill set as a leader and a pitch coach to so those existing players in the in the space it was a lot better mm. so my failure was is that I went there thinking that I had to go and do something and reinvent the wheel where right. the lesson that I learned was that there were players already out there who may not have been as big partner yeah partner with them
0: there you go that's that and, and that's the strategy that all of the uh the new fintech banks are taking and the, and the larger established banks, they're all partnering with the disruptive players and they're not sort of thinking of creating their own platforms from scratch. I think it's it's definitely a, a lesson that a lot of us can, um, can replicate and learn from in business. Um, tell us about some of your mentors, your early mentors, who influenced the way that you think about culture, the way you think about leadership, the way you think about um growing businesses.
1: Oh wow. So I've had so many um uh, outside of my dad I think one of my one of my first mentors was a was a guy called Mr Tallaby and he was of okay. a supplementary school um, that I used to go to when I was younger. Uh, and right. when I was younger the, the majority population of black people in the UK were of Caribbean descent and he was mm. the first african teacher that I had and and for me it, it shaped a lot about Um, what would, uh, what has been a a contentious bit of friction between African and Caribbean culture Yeah, gave me a lot of wisdom about how we transcend that. And and he was one of the individuals that really drove into me this sense of community and pan-Africanism that it's wider than one country. It's quite global. So he was quite good in terms of that collective sense of responsibility. Mm. um since then I've had many others I've uh, in business you know I I worked for a little while with Richard Branson on some of the programs that he was running for in the short space of time Mm. I had with him he gave me some real uh, mentoring about creativity and about innovation and about how I see um taking an idea to the next level um I currently have a a mentor called Liam who was the he used to be the chief executive at 15 Jamie Oliver's um uh, restaurant sure and a couple of other massive social enterprises and he's continued to be an amazing uh, mentor for me, uh, a, a peer mentor who I started out kind of like a, a, as an elder. I was mentoring him, and now we have this peer mentoring where it's mutual. Is a guy called Andy Iim and he mm-hmm. runs he runs a, a Andy's Investment School, and he has become a really really good friend and a source of 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 um of, of being able to you know share ideas around how we grow stuff. And and again in business, one of two of my big heroes is a, is a guy called Dan McGuire. Who he, he was the founder of a company called Broadbean, which they sold to the Daily Bail Group a number of years ago. And he now right. runs this massive recruitment and both software. And another guy is another mentor of mine is Dean Forbes. And Dean mm. has like basically um, grown and flipped three tech companies to the, to the value Amazing. of a billion. Uh, and, and, and as a black role model for me as well, it's incredibly powerful to see him there doing that kind of stuff. But he's mm-hmm. been an incredible mentor for me as well. So, those, yeah, those are few. There mm. many more, but that's, that, those yeah.
0: come to mind. That's a, that's a pretty decent list. Uh, tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal development, professional development? Um, what do you read specifically around everything that's happening right now in our culture and the world?
1: Um, so I try to balance my reading between fiction and personal development. Okay. Uh, cause I just, sometimes I just need to escape from this mad. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really well. Definitely. But when I do, when I do the personal development stuff, I, uh, I, I try to avoid the self-help stuff. Um, only because quite a lot of it isn't that steeped in research. It's, it's more opinion more than anything else. Mm-hmm. But I do love really good books. All right. One of my biggest areas that I love reading is around, um, economics. And okay. I believe if you really want to build a community, you know, one of the biggest things that you can do is focus around economics. Couldn't I love.
0: Couldn't technology. agree more. I, I wish I studied economics at, at university. Well, I, to I be honest,
1: A level, madam, I flopped my exam so bad I walked <laughs> my name underlined it, and walked right back out again. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But since then, I've been absolutely immersed in it. <laughs> so I do that. Tell us. I love books around history. Okay. I love books around philosophy. Currently, at the moment, I'm reading a book called "The Kabbalah of Money." Um, the Kabbalah of Money. On giving, owning, and receiving. And it's written by a guy called Rabbi Nilton, N-I-L-T-O-N, Bonder, right. B-O-N-D-E-R. But The Kabbalah okay. of Money.
0: Fascinating Interesting.
1: book on Jewish insight on money, how they give, how they own, and they receive. It's an incredible book.
0: Fascinating.
1: Yeah. So history, economics, philosophy. i um, yep. also reading Sapiens at the moment. I've oh. read it two times already, but I'm going back and I'm going to it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You put it down the first two times. I, I couldn't I couldn't step away from it. I thought it was amazing.
1: I got distracted, man, because I was on other podcasts and other books and stuff. I oh, okay. So I, I need to go back and properly dive in. <laughs> fair, fair enough.
0: Fair enough. Uh, wh- what's something... Wh- tell us something interesting that people don't know about your background.
1: Oh, my God. I don't know if anybody doesn't know.
0: Because
1: <laughs> I'm quite out there. I was born uh, in St. Mary's Hospital, which is the same hospital that both Prince Harry and... Uh, William were born in, so they, okay, oh, they, owe me, they they owe me their royalty. <laughs> um, parents, mother from Barbados, dad from Grenada. Um, they came here as expats in the 60s. I say expats because they had a British passport, so they weren't immigrants. Um, wow. What else? Uh, I trialed for Tottenham when I was 13. Oh wow! Um, and- How did it go? It was good, actually, but I wasn't allowed to play football on Saturday. There's a long story. I'll come back to that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that was fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, just, uh, I don't know anything else.
0: I mean, those are three interesting things, to be honest. That's, that's enough. Final two questions, um, and then I'll, I'll let you go. What advice would you give to a young person or a millennial who comes to you and says, they're black, they're ambitious, they're hardworking, they want to make their way in the corporate world? What's the best advice that you would give to her?
1: So I think the, the the number one I would say is is build a network. It's number one, build a network, and what that means is being able to go to spaces where you make connections, where you meet people, um, and whether it's friends or family or you know whatever it is, just make that connection, um, because the network is you know a lot of people saying it sounds trite, but your network is your net worth. You know mm. there are many individuals and, and organizations that I have had the opportunity to to work in. Basically, somebody just introduced me. I think of a lot of my high level clients from sky to uber to facebook to you know all these huge uh, industries Like if i went to them cold it would be harder to get in but my network of mm. people who got me into those spaces okay. and once you've got that network i'll also say to you work smart you do not have to work twice as hard as anybody Work work hard but work smart because there's a very big difference between being productive and being busy and i'll be productive mm. any day um mm. understand economics and understand workplace politics. So those are mine. Build your network, work smart, work hard, understand economics, and understand workplace politics.
0: Great advice. And my final question, David, what do you know about leadership today that you wish you knew when you first started your career? Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> got you. Ooh, that's a good one. I didn't think I didn't think I'd be able to get you with it. Oh, no, it's good. That's one got you
1: again. You know, this is one. This is one of the reasons why I said I like to get caught off by by questions. Yeah. As well, sure. Um, the one thing I I I wish I knew before that I know now is that distributed leadership is powerful than singular.
0: Okay, what does that mean?
1: So singular leadership is when we start looking up to individual people to save us, be that your prime minister, be that your teacher, mm. be that your um, your business leader. But distributed leadership is when we can all take a responsibility and recognize that there are certain moments and certain elements that we will. you can lead by function. You know, at the end of the day, I, I know that as much as I enjoy um, running a business, I love starting businesses, but I want somebody to come and take it over for me afterwards because so I get bored easily. leadership is making sure that i know i can start this stuff and i can get it really excited and get it going but then i can bring in other people who can come in and form part of my c-suite without my ego even being remotely affected Mm. and distributed leadership then makes it's rather than landing on one charismatic person or persons you've got a number of individuals who can definitely step up to the plate and do this stuff really well. It just doesn't take one. There can be loads of us who can come in. And as long as you've created a space enough for people to be able to come and lead in those situations, it works out a lot more effective. I wish I knew that when I first started talking about leadership.
0: Great place to end. David, thank you so much for doing this.
1: No problem, man. No problem. Sorry for my little interruption, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> an honour an honor to be able to, to speak on, on the podcast. today.
0: We have been speaking with David McQueen. He is currently the co-founder of Coastward. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 88 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales, marketing and leadership professionals. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Magecki is our booker slash social manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.